Who you calling crazy? Welcome to Who You Calling Crazy. This is a unique mental health podcast. We are erasing the stigma, elevating and normalizing dialogue around mental health. Of course, we'll be sharing practical therapy tips, but most importantly, we'll be diving into the stories and vulnerability of people you know or want to know. I'm your host, Juliette Kuhnley. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm, my name is Rachel Vindman, and my husband is retired, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, who testified in the first Trump impeachment hearing about what he heard on the July 25th phone call between President Trump and President Zelensky of Ukraine. And after that, uh, you know, our lives were thrown into turmoil and... Now here we are. I'm not even sure where here is, but we are in this place. And the subject in your podcast is just so near and dear to me, not just from my experience and what I've been through, but the idea of so many of the things that you and the topics that you discuss are things that I've really worked through my personal journey throughout 2020 of, you know, an awareness of things that I never stopped to be aware of before because mm-hmm. I had a lot more time to devote to that as well as, you know, the mental health piece, which is maybe something I was more aware of, but not so conscious of it, or certainly not discussing it all the time. So I am a big fan of your podcast. And uh, (laughs) it was a pleasure when you joined us on our podcast um, as well. So what a gift. These are all the best topics. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Well, it's just so relevant. I don't think we always allow ourselves to think about it, or we put it in the back of our mind. 2020 showed us that we can't do that anymore. That's right. Whether it's, you know, being a responsible citizen is facing these challenges. But it it comes with a burden and um, a big responsibility as well. I mean, I cannot imagine it all feels very surreal, I'm sure. But I actually, I was thinking about this sentiment the other day about, you know, how sometimes people are like, I'm tired of having to be strong and resilient. Like quit telling me I'm strong and resilient because that means I've been through all the things. So maybe, <laughs> maybe that's a little bit of like what you're feeling too. Like, like you guys didn't ask to be thrust in this like spotlight and this is it, it must feel like the before and the after. In some ways I'm still waiting for the after, but you know, I was talking to someone the other day who was asking me about, it was a lawyer who was asking some like pointed questions about feelings and you know mm. trying to what? parse out some of that stuff, not to get too deep in the woods, but they were trying to make some assessments and uh, about what we've been through in terms of damages um, to mm-hmm. us. But it was, it was mentally exhausting. It was like a two hour phone call and they were, and, and I didn't, I wasn't really anticipating it, which is maybe good or bad. I was asked, did you talk to someone? Did you talk to a counselor? And I said, you know, yes, like very briefly, I was speaking with someone after Alex was fired from the white house, mostly not because of me, just because we weren't really on the same page. And I was trying to work through my own anxieties about the future, in addition to helping him or trying to be a good partner and not adding to the stress. So anyway, but the point was then everything locked down, you know, and I was starting to realize just the trauma of what had happened, but it was also almost too soon to handle it as well. Yes. So, but, but then again, everything locked down and we were all trying to figure out how to function. Uh-huh. Mainly for me, the biggest thing about the lockdown was like my daughter not going to school because Alex had already been home for about five or six weeks at that point. So we had figured out how to be together after never seeing each other for like almost two years. Right. Um, so that had already been worked out. 
and that was fine. We actually do like each other. So it's okay. Good. But, the, uh-huh. but the other part was, you know, figuring out how to be here with her and, and everything. And so, you know, people were, everything was going virtual and I was like, no, it's fine. They don't need to do it. So now just thinking about maybe it's time to talk to someone again and work through things, you know, and try mm-hmm. to figure it out. So when you, a minute ago, you were speaking to the idea of being still in a trauma. And I think that that brings up for me just as a therapist, yes, the understanding of when people are still experiencing shockwaves, you can't allow yourself to deal and process and like slow down enough to try to cope necessarily. It's it's really mm-hmm. about survival still. And then now with the book release, you're, you guys are having to talk about it again <laughs> and again and again. Yeah. It's easier for Alex. He talks about the phone call. He, I mean, lots of people ask him about, they don't ask him about the harder parts of the book. Um, the harder parts were realizing his career was over, knowing that the army didn't protect him, this you know institution that he served for so long and that they not only didn't protect him, but in some ways actively, you know, offered him as a sacrifice. And, and then, you know, it's not really in the book, but it continues with his brother and he's seen it with his brother who's still in because he was not retirement eligible. So it's been, that I think was the hardest part. It's easier for him to talk about the more sensational stuff. So the perhaps facts. that's a blessing. Yeah. The facts is people want to talk about the phone call. What happened? What was it like? I mean, that's, I think that's a question he gets asked all the time, yeah. but on some of the longer interviews, certainly they get into the meteor stuff. And, um, right. Because what you're, I mean, it's so much grief. I mean, not <laughs> right. I mean, like you're saying the loss of identity in that too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, as a, but, and for you, I mean, I think that's, what's so compelling too, in wanting to talk with you, like being a military wife is one thing already. And then now, and your identity gets so wrapped up in all that too, with, you know, moves. Yeah, and, definitely. Uh, yeah. yeah. And then all of that, the, your relationship with that having to shift and feeling like, you know, again, the distrust in that and the loss of it. I mean, that's heavy. Oh, it definitely is. Military service for a military family is not just the service of the family member. It's everyone's service. It's very much the family service. So it was my identity. We moved every year or two and I was never really able to establish myself professionally. Mm. So uh, it was my profession as well. And a tremendous privilege to serve alongside him, especially in some of our overseas postings and represent not only the United States at the embassy, but also the army and the department of defense was a huge honor. Mm-hmm. But to see that those sacrifices that we made, like the sacrifice of not being home when my father suddenly passed away, mm-hmm. I had actually just uh, returned to Ukraine. When my mom died, I was not able to get home in time. I mean, I, once we realized that it was very serious, I, I flew back and uh, she was still alive, but I didn't get to mm-hmm. see her conscious. Um, there was a delayed flight and that's how it is. So I think she knew I was there, yeah. but she wasn't as lucid as she had been. And Alex left us in a Mexico, but he didn't get to see her either actually before she died. And, you know, another example is that upstairs in our bedroom is our daughter's urn because our daughter who passed away we didn't know where to bury her because we don't really have a home. Uh, I mean, a home place, you know. Yeah. So very much against Jewish tradition, we cremated her so that we could take her with us. And mm. all of those sacrifices really come to mind when I think about the choices and decisions that we made 
mm-hmm. so Alex could serve. And I, I don't regret any of it, but boy, did it hurt. It really, really hurt to see that those things didn't matter mm. to a lot of people. And but I mean, the leadership of the military, actually. Sure. And because these are things as a, you know, as a civilian, I mean, I don't know what that life even looks like remotely, you know? <laughs> and so to hear you make it in a very human, relatable, to help me understand the sacrifices too, in that kind of way really helps. And again, that's a tremendous thing that brings just you guys together too, right? Because you're then each other's home place. Yeah, definitely. There's, there's no location, mm-hmm. but we have to navigate this together and makes relationships, I suppose, you know, that much sweeter. You know, and I, I have two, two brothers and one of them lives not near family and the other one still lives in our hometown. And I just see they're different. I mean, they both have great marriages and healthy marriages, but they're very different because of, and I, I mean, I, I see in one, the one who doesn't live near home, I can see he and his wife are just a lot closer. They depend on each other a lot more. Um, mm. And my other brother, they also, I mean, they depend mm. on each other, but it's very different. They have extended family. They have just some, you know, good friends they've had for years and years and years. I mean, we have good friends too, but they just don't live near us. Yeah, <laughs> so, uh, it just looks different. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So. And wow, you have been is. through an incredible amount of loss. <laughs> Yeah, I, a lot of loss in a very short time, which is horrible. It was and is horrible. I hate to say it like this, but I can't think of any other way. When we were attacked by President Trump and his enablers and administration and whoever else, and it still is happening, it just doesn't bother me because you will never criticize me or hurt me in anything close to what I've been through in real life. So whether it's a troll on Twitter or it's going on, you know, and saying and saying horrible things about my husband, like I know who he is. Ugh. I know exactly who he is. And I remember, you know, I spoke with uh, Liz Cheney, who called me the first day that Alex testified, and she stuck up for him like right away when people were making saying horrible things. And she and I might not agree on on some things, but she called me. I called her office to thank her, and she called me back and from a very like just human perspective, I really appreciated it. And I told her, she said, you know, I hope these, I hope it's not bothering you. I'm so sorry. And I said, it won't bother me because I know who Alex is. Mm. I I know he's not any of these things. He held our baby when she took her last breath, last breaths. And then he held me for two years until I could be a human again. And he was so devoted to me. So they can say whatever they want. They can make these claims, but I know the truth. And mm. it hurts me to see them saying those things about him. Of course. Of course. But that's not the same as having to question whether or not it's true. And I can assure you for him, it doesn't bother him at all. I mean, I know a lot of people say that, but it really doesn't bother him. It's kind of annoying. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I, gosh, I mean, that gives me chills though, because it's really hard for people to tune out the noise and just Mm -hmm. be so self-assured and be assured in that dynamic. But I hear what you're saying though, is that you've, you've hit the bottom. I mean, it doesn't get lower than losing a child and that pain and that grief. And so once you've felt something like that, these other things just are more superficial. They just are. Yeah, it's true. I mean, you know, I don't go, of course I do 
like plenty of superficial things get to me. I mean, <laughs> plenty. It's And you know, if you're in that place, I think you should embrace that, that you're in a place where you can say, you got annoyed about some that's something sure. stupid. And you, you think on one hand, you can think this is so dumb. I shouldn't. There are people with real problems. On the other hand, you'd be like, that's not me today. And I can just get annoyed that someone cut me off because yes. I don't have like bigger things right now in this moment that I can think about. I think both things can be true when you've got to give yourself again, the grace to accept that yes. and to be okay with those things because I've lived both of them. And mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I say one is not better. I mean, obviously it's better not to have serious problems. Don't, don't sweat the small, but stuff they're all, all valid, the time. but they're all valid. Yeah, the emotions it is, it around it. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So just, but yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so we definitely have our moments when there's the stupid stuff and I'm glad that we can deal with the stupid stuff, but mm-hmm. it's not all sad, but it does teach you. I mean, you know, it does teach you that place, like again, with resilience, you know, you can get through it. You've been through bad things sure. before and you can go through things. I remember a long time ago, a very long time ago, I lived in Israel and I met the famous women's Bible study teacher, Beth Moore. Okay. And she and I were talking and uh, I mean, some of your listeners might know who she is. She's quite uh, prolific. And uh, actually she recently left the Southern Baptist convention over disagreements. And um, so she and I were talking and she, she asked me something like, what are you afraid of? Or something like that. At that point, I hadn't really ever experienced much loss. I had one grandparent who had died mm-hmm. and I had never, that was the, that was it. And uh I said, you know, I, I'm just so worried that something would happen to my family, you know, that that would, that would somehow be tested in life Oh my gosh. and that something would happen to my family. And I mean, I, I don't remember what she said. I mean, I guess we can probably guess that I'm not, I mean, she's a very kind and compassionate woman, you know, but it probably wasn't anything like that any of us wouldn't tell a friend or someone sure. else. Right. Is that my point? And, sure, um, sure. The truth is like, yeah, I mean, the worst thing that I can imagine happened to me and my dad passed away after we lost our daughter. Mm -hmm. And then before my daughter from our our surviving child was born. And then my mom, um, when she was, when Ellie was six months old, my mom was diagnosed with brain cancer. So it all was just the sandwich, (laughs) you know? Yeah. A lot, but you do, (sighs) you just realize you can get through things Mm -hmm. and you really learn to appreciate what you have that life you don't give it up when you have loss you keep going and you try to make it meaningful and I know for Alex so much of what he does and the decisions he makes is to honor our daughter Sarah's memory and to be a good example for Eleanor our surviving child because that is what matters that is the legacy, but we both very much have a strong feeling that we want to live our lives. That's a, a testament to Sarah, you know, that we can honor her with the Beautiful. decisions and choices we made. And it happened a long time before anything else. I mean, you know, just in small ways, big and small ways, you know, sure. but in every day of like, get up, make this day matter, make it count, make a difference because we're still here. And there's uh, a reason and a purpose for us being here. Yes. But see, uh, you know, and even just you guys saying that making the choice to go a little bit against the Jewish tradition and have her cremated and so you can take her with, I mean, so you guys have been doing things, you know, against the grain. <laughs> that- <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember this rabbi, he was like, well, you know, and I, was uh-huh. like, I get it. 
Mm-hmm. But we've already made this decision. So. Right. Right. <laughs> and so the conviction in that though, that all is from a place of uh, this is what's right. This is what's right for our family or, you know, for our needs. And I just think about on such, you know, the daily conversations I have with clients around things like not overlaying other people's narrative onto our own. Mm-hmm. And things like that. And and you, I mean, does it get any more big scale than being up against the president? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> and yet you're saying you're able to continue to stay the course and believe in your convictions and do the right thing despite all of that pressure. And so I think that's why it's so inspiring for so many people because we can't do that in our it's hard for us to do in our little benign day-to-day choices. <laughs> I mean, you know, one of the things that in terms of marriage, like, so Alex really is very particular. He likes to do things in a very particular way. So sometimes when I would just like him to make a decision, you know, he wants, he wants to take the information in a way longer and, you know, consider it longer. And he very much wants to do it his way in the sense of, you know, if, it doesn't matter if everyone else is doing it that way, not like jumping off a bridge or whatever mm-hmm. the analogies mm-hmm. that we tell kids, but, but I think it's, it's all part of that idea of wanting mm-hmm. to do, make sure that really honoring his self himself and honoring like what he really wants to do in life and the message that he wants to give. And sometimes that does mean missing out on opportunities, sure, financial opportunities, or, or not just financial, but other, you know, sure other financial, other opportunities that could lead to financial opportunities. And I can tell you, it still turns out okay. (laughs) I'm probably the one that's like, can you just do this? But it's okay. And people don't like not like you or not love you. If you're talking about family members, whatever, like people will get over it. And and that's something that he has taught me. It's taken Mm. me a, a longer time to learn that. And I still get frustrated with him sometimes, but I would say it's never not worked out for us and way before any of this, just, you know, to listen to yourself and not be so concerned for whatever reason. Well, when it's values driven, that's what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. When it's absolutely. Values driven, yeah. It, it will be okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. What about mm-hmm. the conversations with Ellie specifically um, during all of this and whether that's around the, the actual decision or just the aftermath and trying to cope when it was first happening, she didn't really, and the first testimony was a closed door testimony. And then the next day there was some stuff on late night TV shows. So then we, we, we showed her some of the clips and she thought some of it was kind of funny. Unfortunately, um, the daily show uh, with Trevor Noah did a, a pretty funny one that she can memorize. And, <laughs> but in it is a clip of Laura Ingram and John Yu and Alan Dershowitz calling Alex a traitor. Mm-hmm. And maybe not my best parenting moment, but Ellie does a really great Laura Ingram impression. <laughs> I think and, you could be proud. I think you could yeah. be proud. And through that, we were able to open up a conversation and a dialogue and explain, you know, some of what was going on. And she still didn't understand it like so, so much. And then, you know, there's a public testimony. She mm-hmm. saw some of that. And you know, she started seeing people coming up to him in public. No one came up to public and said anything bad. So it was all like, you're a hero. You're so brave. Yeah. And so there was a lot of positive association. I would say once he was fired from the White House, I mean, she was really excited because he was going to be home more. But she kind of started to get an inkling that yeah. it was like not everyone liked him. You know, we, we took safety precautionary measures, but I yeah. don't think she ever clued in exactly what was going on there. 
It wasn't until later, really in the fall of last year, late summer and fall, that, and I'm not sure what precipitated it, we still don't know, but she started asking questions like, does this person like mm. Trump or daddy? Mm. And I remember we were going to someone's house and she asked that. And I was like, we very rarely went anywhere because it was COVID. Sure. And I said, well, why would we be going to their house if they didn't like us? <laughs> you know, but she yeah. constantly had this, you know, big concern. And if someone did Gosh. like Trump, that was, so that, that's something we had to say, look, I mean, Mm. it doesn't matter we are who we are and this is the united states and there's room for everyone you know we're not going to be hurt i mean i I hoped that was the case but certainly i mean that's what i told her but uh definitely it's always been in the back of my mind and it continues to be but she is an inquisitive and intelligent child she's not overly so so she's pretty good at verbalizing her emotions uh-huh. and her feelings. So I don't have to worry that she's like thinking about it all you. the time. Yeah. I'm not talking about it. So we're pretty fortunate in that regard. Cause it's, how old is she? Like there's, she's 10 now, 10 and a half. Yeah. So I'm just thinking so about started. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. When she was eight and a half. So the, this past two years, she's been a lot more aware, you know, of things. Now she can watch him on TV and she understands, you know, like what he was doing, the book promotion, a lot of what he was talking about. And she gets it a lot more. Mm -hmm. So we can have, you know, more in-depth conversations. I mean, yeah, I'm just thinking about it from a brain development perspective. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I can imagine just this idea where they're so concrete Mm -hmm. at that point, which isn't, so it makes sense. The question Trump versus daddy. And it's as simple as that. Yeah. 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 Uh (laughs) But then also just what that would represent to a nine, 10 year old. Cause again, we're not just talking about like daddy's coworker. Like this is the (laughs) freaking. Yeah. I don't (laughs) think she really, I mean, yes, she understands the idea that someone is the president. I don't think she gets like the magnitude perhaps. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's not just the president. I mean, yes, it is the Uh, president, but I mean, the, what, what the president of the United States means in the sure, world so sure. that part i mean obviously the president is a very big deal but um not you know to what extent that i don't think she quite uh-huh even grasps it certainly not in a geopolitical sense so okay i wanted to ask you when you said in the very beginning about when you started to enter therapy mm-hmm. and that was when you guys were not on the same page so what can you tell me about what you mean by that uh, well, I was done with the military. I was ready to be done and move on with, with our lives. Alex, I think, really wanted to see if they were going to take care of him. Mm. Pretty unusual for him, but he just wanted to give them any chance to do the right thing. Now, there was a time when we both thought they would do the right thing. They were actually telling us. There were people telling us they were going to do the right thing. But I, maybe their right thing and our right thing looked very different. But as he continued to kind of get data points, Mm -hmm. I felt like he wasn't really listening to them. And I just didn't want that turmoil. I'm not sure I ever doubted that he would get to the point to make the decision, but I was just ready for him to make the decision right then. And he wasn't. He was retirement eligible and I wanted him just to tell them he was retiring and he was moving on and that's it. it. And he had worked so hard. Even the promotion list, it's very difficult to understand, but he wanted it to be known that he was on the promotion list. And and then he was he was told he was on the promotion list, but then they it was held up for a very long time by the Trump White House. And um, I think it's it's difficult for a lot of people to understand, but it was mainly that he wanted that recognition and he mm-hmm. wanted the army to fight for him 
because the White House was actively trying to get his name taken off the list to say he was unfit and he really wanted them to fight for him. Also for the institution. I think that he wanted it for the institution to be like, you need to stand up and do something, you know? So um, it just kind of lingered on forever. So it just felt hopeless. I mean, that must have felt so hopeless. It did. I mean, I was tired of seeing him hurt and disappointed as well. Like, let's just leave. We have opportunities. Let's just go. And he didn't want to do that. But in the process, I felt like he was being hurt. And then there was a lot more like he was kind of talking to people and people would talk to him. It's kind of like a sideshow sort of thing. But mm-hmm. he was also very much radioactive and no one wanted oh, yeah. to hire him and no one. And they were scared about what was going to happen in the election. And I was like, let's just move to an island. Right. But I mean, right. I, I just I hated that for him because someone who is so capable and had worked so hard and then just seen as a political actor when that was he he is farthest not yeah Yeah. I mean now he kind of he is but we both are but we were never that person before those people before so that was that was really difficult and I was just trying to you know I think talk to a therapist and and figure out how I could because a lot of my feelings were based on both fear as well as, um, you know, concern. So how I could kind of, but sure. then the way it would manifest it was probably with him was like anger and frustration. Of course, of course. <laughs> so it was like weird emotion, the opposite of what I was actually feeling, but my expression of them was, was not yes. really helpful to him. And he felt like he was letting me down too. Oh. I just wanted to protect him. So well, yes. it makes sense. Cause you're, yeah, you're desperate. It's coming from that place of desperation, yeah, but yeah. I can imagine how lonely that felt. And that was one of the questions that someone submitted was just, how did you cope with anticipating what Trump might do as in retribution? Because that was a guarantee. After being fired from the white house, that was one thing. I don't know how much, I mean, it's not really a secret, but there was some reporting around it probably kind of niche reporting, if you will, not, it hasn't gotten a lot of publicity, but they were told to take Alex's name off the list. And they had one of his colleagues at the NSC who was actually mentioned in the book a couple of times, Joe Wang had made an allegation that Alex had assaulted him, which is so hilariously uh, laughable, but um, he made it and they were trying to use this. And they're like, Oh, so you should do an investigation based on this person's experience. I was like, okay, fine. We did an investigation. We did not even know that they did an investigation. Alex didn't know he wasn't made aware, but the army said they did an investigation. I don't know. I mean, all this is weird. They sort of just said, no, there's no reason to do an investigation, but they went along with it, which was also hurtful. And um, we didn't find out after the fact, but they apparently did it. And it was based on this person's Joe Wang's allegation, but Joe would not go and say that in a sworn statement because it wasn't true. So, I mean, he was kind of fine to do it to extent, but then when it got real, he was not willing to do it. They really had no evidence, but in the end, the white house won because they waited Alex out because he submitted his retirement paperwork on the very last day that it was possible, or he would have incurred another obligation to stay in the military. Huh. So his name was never officially on the promotion list. And the day after Alex submitted his retirement paperwork, the promotion list was approved and announced because there was no longer the problem. The problem was Alex's name and it was delayed, you know, several months. But when, I mean, this is sort of how gaslighting works too, when things are just so petty and passive aggressive, I mean, like that is really hard to deal with. 
because it's not just, you can't make sense of it or anticipate what's going to happen next. Yeah. Like for instance, you know, that summer, last summer when we just every day was like some sort of new ridiculous story Mm -hmm. with them. And I told a friend, I was like, it's so weird. It's like hot. It's summer in Virginia. And I just, I'll just start shaking and shivering. And she was like, that's adrenaline, Rachel, that's shock. And I was like, oh really? I had no idea. And I, I didn't even, I didn't know what that was or what it looked like, but it was, it was just something maybe three or four times a week when I would have this like physical response because I just, and I just wanted it to be over, Yep. but he wanted for himself, for the institution, for just right out there. He wanted them to fight for him and have his name on the list. And I'll tell you what really, really upset me more than anything was when Secretary Esper resigned and Secretary McCarthy later, they both specifically talked about Alex and how they were defending him. And, you know, to my answer, like, that would have been nice to know. Uh, But we didn't. No one said, hey, I'm, we're trying to do the right thing for you. Just hang on. It was radio silence. So there was never a guarantee that if he hadn't submitted his paperwork, that he would have been promoted, that everything would have been okay. And we did not know who was going to win the election. Mm. Well, as you know, even until election night, I mean, there was many days, no one knew what was going to happen. So it was a huge risk. So, yeah. So you're always wondering what Trump would do was, was a horrible place because you had, we'd seen so many more lives destroyed and him destroy lives. I mean, certainly I would credit the American people with their support of Alex is what made me feel safe because I felt like it got to be so big that (sighs) it was a too big to fail type thing. I don't know. I mean, that if, if we hadn't received so much support, I think they would have been more inclined to do a lot worse things. I can't even wrap my head around this, Rachel. Like (laughs) it brings, it brings tears to my eyes because I'm like, me as just a regular old, nobody down here, what felt like I was living in fight or flight (laughs) with what he would do next. And you were actually in the crosshairs. So again, Mm -hmm. the, when you talk about that adrenaline and body response, that's what that is. I mean, you're definitely, you were waking up in that fight or flight all the time. And, um, when you're having to, to dodge landmines in real life like that, that's, that's a trauma response. So (sighs) here we are. And so, like you said, you're still kind of waiting for the after, which, you know, I don't even know what that means. Right. Like with, with, especially, you know, with the book and kind of getting the story out there and there's gotta be something really mm-hmm. cathartic about that too. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I, and I think, you know, Alex wanted to write one specific kind of book. This was the book. Mm-hmm. A lot of people didn't want the book. They wanted a Trump book. They wanted a sensational book, but he didn't want to write that book. He wanted to write a book of hope is an mm-hmm. answer to all the letters of support and all the kindness that he had received. He wanted to talk about his immigrant experience because so many people wrote beautiful letters, like real mm-hmm. handwritten letters about their families Mm. immigration experience and that's what he wanted to talk about and you know it just seems like all the time like we are talking about Afghanistan now all the time we continue to have this discussion about refugees and immigrants and it's because it's become a hot button issue for the right so we talk about it all the time I think it'll always be timely you know to have these discussions but he wanted to write a book of hope and I think he did a really good job with it and I'm proud of him for you know, he turned down mm-hmm. twice as much money in terms of, you know, opportunities, twice as much money that was offered to him, but mm-hmm. he didn't want to do it because that's not 
the book he he wanted to write. And um, I'm thankful for that as well. It's frustrating though. I mean, it's frustrating not from a sense of a financial sense for us personally. It's frustrating that so many are in this position and we know that that that's the shiny object. The that's what sells. Sure. That's why they want it because it's what sells. It's not their fault. I'm not blaming them. We, you know, it's, it's a very supply and demand type situation, sure. but it definitely causes you to do a lot of introspection of like, what do I choose to watch? What do I choose to read? What am I drawn to? Because I know what society is drawn to because that's what they're trying to find. You know, mm-hmm. more more real true crime podcasts, less mental health podcasts. You know, <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> right. But are you enjoying your process in y'all's podcast? Very much so because yeah. it's a very, it's something that's like really authentic to me. Yes. It's something that I can talk about from a place that I don't feel like an imposter when I'm talking about suburban women, because that's who I am and talking about just women join women who, you know, maybe haven't been part of this discussion and are joining this discussion. Uh-huh. And one of my best friends moved away for two years and she just moved back. And I mean, she's like zero political. She invited me to go to something and I'm going in a couple of weeks and it's a military thing. She's like, retire, retirees can go. And I was like, I love that you don't know how much people hate us, especially around here, but I'm going to go with you because, you know, she's like, really? I'm like, really? And by the way, her husband's like a very senior leader and she just is like kind of, but you know, I still have friends like that. And I think it's important. Like, I, sure. think, I don't just have like these activist friends. I don't have any sure. activist friends. And, and so that's one of the reasons why the podcast, because I like to talk to those people who maybe don't important. listen to anything else the rest of the week that might be like remotely political. But you can do this and it's not like this deep dive, you know, from the high dive into the deep end of the pool. It's it's more have regular conversations with regular people and get a different perspective. Which is so important because everything is so charged these days. So it's like impossible to get a different perspective. (laughs) It's impossible. And we all have it in our families, right? Our friend group. I mean, it's everywhere. And I love though. So like the themes of today, right? I mean, unsurprisingly, conviction and values, but also just like showing up. So you even going to that thing, like, yep, people are going to be like, can't believe she's here. Yeah. You don't care. You're going. And, and that, you know, yeah. I, anyone, people who might follow me on Twitter or don't, like a few weeks ago, we were in California for the book stuff and I posted a picture with Arnold Schwarzenegger's Conan Barbarian stored, which like got a lot of vitriol. A lot of vitriol. A lot like you're fat, you're ugly, like they made memes out of it. They oh, gracious. Like, blew up and showed like that my forearms are fat. I mean, this is a lot of work. So I say this, what bothers me is not what they say. Do I know I need to lose weight? Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Um, and I also know how I gained the weight, a lot of grief and a lot of fertility treatments. Um, so like five years of fertility treatments. So yeah, I, I, I know all this and that's okay. But what gets me is the commitment to harassing me. But still, I'm going to show up. I mean, because that's a different kind of, if someone says something there, that's a totally different thing. But I'm not going to let it curtail who I am and what I do. Yes. I'm 47, so I have this luxury of being able to not care so much. I mean, I definitely know who I am. But, and you know, I used to be... Mm -hmm the youth of, you know, everything is black and white and life just shows you that it's not. I left the United States and moved to Israel when I was 24. And I learned that people are more alike than they are different. And that was a huge eye-opening experience. 
as a military spouse, mm-hmm. I encountered a lot of people who grew up very differently than mm-hmm. me and with totally different va- values, not, not values, but just different experiences that brought a whole different approach to parenting, a whole different approach to family. It wasn't necessarily right or wrong, but very, very different. I had been very sheltered and, mm. you know, just so many, so many different things. When we lived in Moscow, I had a pulmonary embolism. Mm. I had a pulmonary embolism that was uh, a result of fertility treatments. And mm. after that, I suffered um, pretty significant medical anxiety. And I'd never mm. had like, like true anxiety before. So even though like there's one thing to know something exists, there's another thing to experience it. So it just gave me a whole new compassion for people. And I think those are things that you can only get with life experiences. And being open to hearing about others and all of that. Cause that's the thing is you don't ever know what somebody's going through. You don't. And it's really hard. It's the permission you're talking about. Like you, you're giving yourself permission um, your family, like all each individually, you all and collectively giving yourselves permission to show up authentically. Mm-hmm. That's the stuff. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It Which is. Has, I mean, yeah. that is where it really matters. And time and time again, life has taught me that way. And you guys are a family that are walking that walk and it's super inspiring. And of course, for all of the reasons that people know him to be a hero and you to be a hero to, to be on that journey. But all these other, these other smaller things, quote unquote, smaller <laughs> in ways that you guys should, I just, I feel super, super inspired by that. Thank you. It's- Thank you. I mean, it doesn't, when people ask me, what is it like, or what was it like when he was testifying and all those things? I'm like, there were never choices to make really. It was just, again, about doing the next right thing. And there was never like a deliberation. Are you going to do this or this? It was just, and I never asked him what he was going to do because I knew the decision he would make. And the thing is, is I think that's in most people. I really, really do. I really do. You know, he wrote a book about, and he talks about training yourself to do the right thing, but so much about you know, when he talks about training yourself to do the right thing, it's really key. He talks about it in relation to public service, but, but the bigger part of that is not, not so much in relation to public service. It's public service is a way to train your mind to think of others too, that you're not the only person in this world, whether it's, you know, organizing a co-drive or food drive mm-hmm. for your neighborhood, I mean, for your school or your, your community or coaching little league game or whatever it is, you are thinking of others and understanding that you're part of a bigger thing. Mm -hmm. And that I think doing that in the military is definitely one of those service organizations working in government that you were part of a a much bigger, much bigger organization. Mm -hmm. And, or we all are as a country, as a community, however you want to divide it up. And then when you do that every day, you start, to see that your decisions, how they affect everyone. So I think that was a huge part of his calculus and, mm-hmm. and how he didn't have to think about doing things. He just did it because it was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Last little crazy question time. I'm just going to throw yeah. some funny, funny questions out to you. All right. Any president dead or alive that you'd like to get coffee with? <sighs> oh, wow. I think George Washington, I would just like to, but I hear he really liked ice cream. 
So I just, you know, there's so much has been written. I'd really like to suss out like uh-huh. what, what he's really like, um, you know, cause there was, there's been a lot of, uh, here and there, a lot of like fan George Washington fan fiction. So I'd like to get to the bottom of it. That is hilarious. Okay. Um, I don't like calling them guilty pleasures because I think it's just the things <laughs> that we all need, but favorite guilty pleasure. Cause I know you'll understand what I mean by saying that. <laughs> yes. Just hiding out in the basement and, uh, just telling everyone to not come down there and whether that's, uh, I don't know, a scrolling Instagram on my phone or I, I secretly actually something I really like to do is like listen to a book or a podcast on audible and play like a mindless game on my phone at the same time. And I, love I don't it. know why it's very relaxing. To me. See, I don't think anybody should feel guilty about these things. Those are our little <laughs> sabbaticals that we know, but I don't like my daughter to watch something on the iPad and of course. play a game. So um, media multitasking. Yep. Yes. Yep. Yep. I do it, but I don't like anyone to see me do it because I it's not a healthy really thing. You've just outed yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Thank you for taking the time to talk mental health in this story um, that you said has been so sensationalized, but you guys are humans first. And so just to extend some compassion around the whole thing. And I love what you said in the very beginning about how maybe it's time to kind of get in there and, and tease out some of what's been going on with a therapist again and like try to, you know, now that you're in a space that's maybe the fight or flight has calmed down a little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, okay. I know. I mean, I, I absolutely, it is definitely my intention and I think it makes me a better person and better able to cope and deal with life's everyday stressors, but um, also that I can react with the emotions that I, I feel but I don't always express when I want to help, especially my husband and my yeah. daughter. Yes. That's the biggest thing I think that um, therapy can really help you do because you walk away and you're like, that's not what I meant. It's right. not what I meant to say, but it's right. what came out of my mouth and right. it didn't make them feel sure. what I really do feel. Yeah. Them. The skills help with that pause and the yeah. response yeah. instead of the reaction. Uh-huh. Yep. Yes. Yes. Yep. Always. You said it much better than I could. So yeah. Well, no, I say it every day, all day, but also <laughs> it doesn't mean that I do it every day, all day no, either. No, you no. know, it has to be intentional for all of us, for yes. everyone. I mean, there's a big difference between knowing something intellectually and being able to um, pause to do it ourselves. Thank you so much. I can imagine. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. For so many of us, we worry about what others are going to think or how it's going to look. We consider how it's going to be to show up in the context of others versus tapping into our own inner knowing or our own values and just showing up no matter what or despite all of the noise. It can be so hard to go against the grain or to do something unpopular or ruffle feathers. And at the end of the day, it really is quite simple sometimes, right and wrong aligned with one's healthy individual values or not. Rachel and I also talked about something that's been getting a lot of airtime on social media lately, which is trauma response. So she described her jitteriness and adrenaline and increased vigilance amidst something like this family went and is going through can absolutely yield feelings of being on guard, jumpy, jittery, on edge, and yes, irritability. So I just want to again validate that however it shows up is okay. 
and valid. And yes, sometimes the expression of this does seem incongruent from what we're feeling. If we're still dealing with something and we're activated and therefore potentially not fully expressing it or processing it, like sadness, fear, worry, that energy can come out as anger and irritability. So learning to soothe and pause and slow down and respond are all, these are all hopeful skills in calming that fight or flight response and being able to pull on healthy coping skills and have effective congruent communication as part of that work. I really appreciate you all listening today. Thanks so much. So who you calling crazy? I think you mean human. We are removing the stigma, y'all. Say it loud and proud. Yep, I go to therapy. 